We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to a preview of Season 14 of Clear and Vivid. We have a great lineup, don't we, Graham? We do. We have a fascinating group of people. We have uh, actors, we have scientists, we have actors who are scientists, we have actors who are musicians, we have musicians, we have writers, and we even have a Supreme Court justice. Eleven fascinating people. Starting with Kevin Bacon, the, the wonderful actor who's been in so many movies, entertained us so many times, and who became the subject of a meme and then a game that he wasn't really happy about, even, <laughs> even though he was the center of the whole thing, which was the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I don't know if everybody knows how that works. The idea is based on the idea that uh, mathematicians had figured out that I believe everybody in the world is connected to everybody else by six degrees of separation. In other words, I, I know you, Graham, and you know Bill. So you and I are one degree apart, and Bill and I are two degrees apart. Would you say is that how it goes? That's exactly right, yes. Uh, and, uh, and I know my dog, so you know my dog three degrees apart. And he knows the cat <laughs> next door, and so it goes. But I guess it only applies to people. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Kevin Bacon thing applies only to actors. The idea is every actor in, that you see in a movie is no greater than six degrees apart from from Kevin Bacon by by virtue of the fact that Kevin Bacon has been in a movie with a, one actor who's been in a movie with another actor and so on. You know, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was specifically connected through uh, the acting chain in the case of Kevin Bacon. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But then Kevin Bacon, like all of us, is supposed to be six degrees from everybody, right. regardless of what they do for a living. Right. Right. So I, I wondered how that whole thing came about, because it certainly wasn't generated by him. He wasn't happy about it, at least at first. But he turned it into a really positive thing, which I thought was admirable on his part. So here's Kevin explaining how it all began. When that whole thing happened, it was just a, you know, a couple of college kids just kind of having fun in their dorm room. And they came up with it and they happened to pick me and they could have picked a, a lot of other people. They could have picked you. You know, I was very resistant uh, to the idea because it was a joke and I really take took my work so seriously, you know, and I didn't really want to be the, the butt of the joke. 
And I thought it was kind of like, um, you know, we're, we, you know, we're actors. We got a lot of pretty deep seated insecurities about that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 uh, Otherwise, why would we get up in front of millions of people and say, exactly, like exactly. <laughs> we're, 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 we're trying to uh, override our imposter syndrome pretty much like, <laughs> yeah. you know, consistently. And, um, and yet it just didn't go away. You know, it just, it just kept hanging in there. And so I thought to myself, um, I was at a point in my life where I was trying to figure out some kind of way to do a little bit more kind of giving back. You know, I think that when I started out, like a lot of young performers, um, I was uh, necessarily like super, super self-involved and and really, really just um, uh, yeah, had myself at the center of the universe. You know? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and and then eventually, you know, you have kids and or things happen in your life or you start to spend a little bit more time looking at the newspaper or, or, you know, personal, um, relationships. And I started thinking, maybe I just need to do a little bit more, um, giving back in a way. So I thought, well, what, what, what can I, what, what can I use? Or is there a brand? You know, I, I was really so impressed with Paul Newman and the way he took the, took the food and, and, and something that he loved to do and just raised a whole much, bunch of money with that. Um, so, I was just kind of, I didn't know really anything about philanthropy or about um, what the, it would be. All I did was went out and with a friend, because I didn't even know how to do this, we got the website, sixdegrees.org. You know, I just, you know, purchased it for, you know, a couple <laughs> thousand bucks or something. And that was just the beginning of it. So we're constantly changing and morphing and figuring out how to do it. Um, we, tr we try to use uh, a certain amount of um, uh, kind of, celebrity just because that's kind of it, you know the six degrees thing that's what people relate to but i'm really interested sort of across the board in a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing kind of good work down on the ground so it's so be, my feelings about things that need help and and uh and ways to reach out are really scattered because i find myself at I mean, one day i pick up the paper and it's like all I'm thinking about is the environment. And then all I'm thinking about is, 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 um, you know, social injustice. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking about cancer and then I'm thinking, you know what I mean? I'm really like, mm -hmm. I, I go, so that's a little bit what six degrees.org is like. We're a little bit, you know, spread out. It sounds like the idea of six degrees kind of permeates the whole philanthropic notion in the sense that you make people aware of their connection to things happening locally far away from them that they might not have otherwise heard about, might not have felt they were connected to, but you connect them. If I went to the website and I wanted to be part of this effort, what would I be asked to do? Well, there's um, ways to uh, volunteer. There's ways to look for organizations that uh, are in your neighborhood that have some kind of focus on something that that you are interested in. And, and then we always have some new piece that we're kind of supporting. Um, for instance, we were supporting during the pandemic um, a couple of great grassroots organizations that were taking restaurants, okay, and using those restaurant employees who obviously were, were a lot of them were out of work and, and uh, you know, restaurants were closed and had, had no clientele, but there were still people that they were able to make the food and then take the food to 
frontline workers, specifically hospital workers who mm. were not even getting, the hospitals were so overrun, they weren't even getting time to go out and get a bite to eat. So we take a local restaurant and a local hospital and uh, everybody wins. So Kevin Bacon not only acts, but he also sings. Uh, the, the, the Bacon Brothers, he sings with his brother, Michael. In fact, they had just done a gig about a, a few days before you talked to him. And they write, too. They compose. And he has a podcast. Yeah, I really enjoyed the podcast he did for Spotify called The Last Degree of Kevin Bacon. It's a, <laughs> it, it's a comedy, and it's very funny and very far out, very, very odd, and I enjoyed it very much. Your next guest, Mayim Bialik, also has a podcast. She also has just finished writing and directing a movie. She, of course, recently had a major role in The Big Bang Theory. And one of the most interesting aspects of Mayim, which a lot of people probably know, is that she's a PhD neuroscientist. So you began your conversation with her, uh, talking a little bit about how her acting career began. And it turns out, I didn't know this, she was the young Bette Midler in a movie called Beaches when she was 11. And that led to a continuing role in a sitcom called Blossom, in which she played, she played Blossom. She was, she was the star of the show. That's right. Between the ages of fourteen and nineteen. And what was so fascinating in your conversation with her is that it beautifully tied together how acting led to neuroscience and how neuroscience led back to acting. That's right. <laughs> When I started acting, nobody looked like me on TV. You know, I couldn't get commercial jobs. The parts that I got were for, you know, what were called character roles mm. for, you know, character actors. So the notion that someone would make a TV show with me in it was extremely far from my consciousness. And to be honest, when it happened, it was very overwhelming because what was always interesting to me was performing and <laughs> you know, getting it right, you know, getting it right and moving on to the next scene. So all of the other like stuff that came with it, that's, that wasn't really what was holding me in the industry, you know, the fame or the money or this, that, that wasn't what I craved. You know, I, I was the grandchild of immigrants. I was supposed to go to college. And so that's what I did. It's what I wanted to do. Um, I, also worked with Woody Allen just before, you know, uh, Blossom ended. So, you know, at that time in my career, I was kind of like, well, I've done all the things that I thought I should do in life. So. <laughs> you were I guess ready, ready to retire and read books. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was 19 and I like was feeling like I'm tired, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I had fallen in love with science, you know, as as many people do. I had a wonderful, um, a wonderful tutor and she inspired me and gave me the confidence to believe I could study science, even though it didn't come naturally to me. And so I went to UCLA. I stayed close to home. And um, yeah, I was away from the industry for about 12 years. I did a couple episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm um, in there. And I auditioned for some stuff here and there. But um, I was really happy kind of being in the in the real world. You know, I was sure I was recognizable. But once you're in science classes and everybody's getting ready to go to medical school, they don't care who you are. They just care if you're going to get a better grade than them on the chemistry <laughs> test and, you know, knock off their place in, in the med school line. What you got a Ph.D. in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. What how did you gravitate to neuroscience and that particular branch of it that you did? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I originally, you know, was really fascinated with with biology and with DNA. 
Um, but you know, to be honest, once, once I took one of my first introductory classes at UCLA and, uh, we learned about the neuron, um, I literally had a moment where I said, this is the level of understanding of the universe I want to have. Mm. Um, you know, the, the electrical properties of, of the cell and, and just everything about that. The fact that neuroscience is, you know, the science that explains consciousness and speech and, um, degenerative conditions. Like it was just, it was all the things about the universe that I wanted to understand at that level. Did you think that you were going to never go back to acting or, or how did you, how did you think about the future? Yeah, I really thought that I enjoyed being a research professor was what I thought I would do. You know, I had, I had been teaching for, for years as a, as a graduate student. Um, you know, I, I was enjoying a relatively, you know, kind of quiet and anonymous life. You know, nobody cared what I looked like, or, you know, if I wanted to put some streaks in my hair that were a crazy color, no one was telling me I couldn't. And, you know, to be honest, the world of academia is not without complexity and ego and a lot of the things that we have in the industry. But um, yeah, I, I was really enjoying my life and, you know, was very, um, very excited to have children and, and be home with them. You know, I actually left academia to be home with my children, meaning I got my doctorate um, and then did not take a postdoc position. And eventually that led to me returning to acting because I was running out of health insurance. That's the truth. <laughs> it's so ironic <laughs> that, that that show business is what you fall back on. Well, you know, the sag after health plan is pretty darn good. <laughs> so I figured if I can get a couple jobs here and there, I, I mean, I had a, you know, I had an infant and a toddler, yeah. you know, and I was teaching kind of to make ends meet. I, I did not have a fortune, you know, waiting for me. People did not make a lot of money like they do now in the nineties, especially teenage actors. You know, it, it was a very different world. We didn't have endorsements and publicity stuff. And, you know, I was just living my life. <laughs> so another guest we have is an old friend of yours, author Roger Rosenblatt. Author and great teacher, Roger is unusual as a teacher because he brings out what's the best in you as a writer. And he, I think, I think I could say Roger is a kind of a teacher about life too, because life lives in his novels and in his nonfiction. He's also wonderful at giving writers prompts. You know, think of a thing. And what comes out of you when you when you think of that noise or that 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 moment, that action? So I wondered what prompted him to write when he starts to write. How do you start a piece that you're going to write? Huh. I tell you, I, um, it's not always the same thing, but it's so often the same thing that I guess I could talk about it with some confidence. And it's, uh, I know, and it sounds mysterious, more mysterious than it ought to be because this is a craft as well as an art. But I wait. I wait for something to come to me, and it's usually an image. It's almost always an image, not a word. You know, I hear that from other writers, and it happened to me. When I wrote Four Seasons, all I had was the feet and legs of three couples getting out of a car. Ah, that's perfect. And I wondered who those three couples were. It's just right, just now, right. So, what what would be an example that that happened for you? My most recent book is called Cold Moon, 
and the cold moon of the year is the last moon of the year, and it anticipates the winter solstice. I did not know that what I just told you. I had to look that up. But one night, I was visiting in New Jersey, and I looked and I looked over the ocean and looked out at the ocean. And to my left was the moon, except the moon was so big and so bloodshot, I thought it was the harvest moon. Hmm. And it couldn't be for the timing, but it was, it was overwhelming. And I looked it up, and I thought, what is this? Does this have a name? And sure enough, it was the cold moon. Once I saw the cold moon, all imaged so far, like the legs that you saw, and no definition, I didn't, I didn't come to any conclusions. And then I started to think. That's when so you sort of marry the intellect to the, to the uh, image. You marry the intellect to the art. And I thought, well, I'm coming to the end of my life. I'm in the eclipse years of my life. And there's this moon rising over the sea and shedding its um, gorgeous glow over the waves, etc. What is important to me? What is important to me that I have learned? And it came to three simple things, life, love, and responsibility. And so I wrote Cold Moon on life, love, and responsibility. How did you get from the image of the moon to what does life mean to me? That seems like a leap. How come you didn't write about an astronaut? It, it <laughs> well, because I don't know anything about life. No, I barely know anything well, about life. Why, love why let that stand in the way now? It never has before. You're quite right. And it's cruel of you to mention it. I don't know how it happens. But I know that if you allow yourself to sort of give yourself to the, the mystery, you allow yourself to give yourself to the mystery in front of you, this beautiful moon rising over the sea, shedding its light on the sea and f reflected in the waves, and the waves almost look like an audience applauding the moon. And I live in the mystery. What, what is this? This overwhelming, this overwhelming sight. And we're little people doing little things, and suddenly there's this bigness in front of us. And you think, well... If I am writing about the end of my life, I must have learned something that's worth giving to others. Most of most of writing, one way or another, is a work of generosity, whether the, the writer uh, admits it at the moment uh, or not. Uh, he wants to give something to somebody. And I wanted to give what I had picked up about the importance of life, the absolute necessity of love, and the power of and the necessity of responsibility, of how life is full of instances where one thing is responsible for the welfare of another, and we are always, we, that is people, are always responsible for the welfare of one another. And so these three things, life, love, and responsibility. Later in the season, you talk with Scott Small. He's a physician specializing in patients with memory problems, many of them with Alzheimer's. Most of us would like better memories, I guess, but Scott argues there's a good reason we forget stuff. The title of his recent book is Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. But the clip I chose from your conversation came when he mentioned a part of the brain that's crucial to forming memories. In fact, as a part of your brain, you have fond memories of the hippocampus. I guess we shouldn't fling around the word hippocampus without your describing it a little bit. I'm very, uh, I'm very attached to the hippocampus because I was once told by a researcher who is a very attractive person, that I, after I came out of the MRI machine, she said, you have a very plump hippocampus. 
<laughs> well, first of all, I know that you're interested in science, and so I actually didn't stop us and try to define hippocampus. The other thing is, uh, I also know of you long enough to know that your hippocampus, without looking at the MRI, is plump. Okay, so- <laughs> you say that to all the boys. No, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I do not. I do not. But but uh, but I what I do say honestly, I do have I do say in one of the early chapters that it's an occupational hazard to talk with me because what I do for a living is evaluate someone's brain and cognitive abilities. And the second I just even chit chat with someone yeah. socially, I can't help but start wondering, well, how good is that part of the brain? How good is that other? But but what does a plump hippocampus mean? What, what do we mean when we say someone's hippocampus is functioning well? I think we're actually lucky that we have the perfect analogies, the, uh, the personal computer that I'm sitting in front of, I, I gather you are as well. Yeah. And so if I type a document, typing something on a document and I turn my computer off, I've lost that information forever. That's memory loss. If I want to save that information and store it in my hard drive, keep memory alive, I need to click save, right? Every computer program has that click save function, which effectively takes that information from my screen and moves it to my hard drive. That in a very simple sense, is what the hippocampus does. The hippocampus is the click-save function in our brains. And so if there are few people, I've met a few of these people who really, because of an accident or or, or an infectious disease, their hippocampus is removed. Mm. If you think about it for a second, if you were to talk to them, they their memory is okay because they're as long as their their computer is on the memories in their memory in in their minds but the second they're pulled away for a few minutes or if you see them tomorrow it's like they've seen you for the first yeah, time yeah i know i they can never save any new information it is really quite interesting i know i interviewed someone like that who had severely damaged hippocampus and he could remember with great detail the route he took to school when he was a child but he couldn't remember what we had talked about three minutes earlier. Incredible. He would tell me the same story over and over again. So that patient that you met, the one I met, they had no click save function. They could not move any new information into their memory stores, and therefore they could not remember anything new. But what they did have, what your patient had, my patient had, was an intact ability to click open. So let's go back to the computer metaphor. Mm -hmm. You type something in your computer, a document, you click save, it's in your hard drive, you come back tomorrow, you want to open it and edit it, you again, go to that function in your computer uh, app that says click open or open or search, and it opens up all your files and you find that right file. That's the retrieval mechanism of your computer. And that's a retrieval mechanism, which more or less is localized to the frontal cortex right behind our foreheads. So I can tell you already that if you're that person you were talking to can faithfully recall old information, his click open function was normal. Again, just like I told you I do to anyone I meet, I can tell you that his prefrontal cortex was functioning normally. And that's a simple way of thinking about how memory is saved stored and retrieved in the brain. Another of your guests is somebody that you actually met at an event not too long ago. 
Tell us about that. It was Marin Alsop, the musical conductor. And we met at the Juilliard commencement ceremony because we were both getting honorary degrees from Juilliard. And she's such an interesting person. I asked her right on the spot if she'd be on the podcast. And right on the spot, she said yes. It was just as well that you asked her then, because I was just looking up her schedule. Do you know, starting uh, this this fall or going through to, to the end of the year, she's going to be conducting in Denmark, Germany, Austria, back in the United States, Brazil, back in Germany again, all between October and December. And she's able to do all this because uh, she's just concluded 14 years, I think it is, as the music director of the Baltimore Symphony, the uh, the first woman conductor of a major orchestra. I was very interested to get down to the bottom of what a conductor does. So I, I, I started off with a, a question that I hoped she wouldn't mind my asking. It turned out to be a very good question. Let me start with an impertinent question to try to understand more about conducting. Why do we need a conductor? I mean, is there a limit? Is there, is there a, a, um, a number of people below which you don't need a conductor? I noticed that quartets, <laughs> it's a great question. quartets don't have conductors, and, and a lot of chamber right. orchestras of around 18 or 20 people don't have conductors, although many do. What, 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 is, it, is it the number of people that need to get organized? What, what's, the, what's the element yeah, that the I conductor mean, supplies? That's, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. It's a good starting point because a lot of people say, well, what are you doing up there? You know, waving your <laughs> yeah. arms. And what's going on? Right. I, the, the role of the conductor, I mean, it, the, the technical role literally is to, of course, keep everybody together. You're mm. in charge of the ensemble. So you're, you're spot on. You know, when the ensemble gets above a certain number of people, it's very, very difficult for the musicians to hear across stage and to communicate from a distance. And so having a focal point at the end of the baton really brings everyone together. Um, but I think the role of the conductor is, it's not really understood as well as I would like it to be. The conductor is the messenger of the composer. Mm. It's almost like being a director. You know, you, you, you read the script and you have to bring the creator's words to life. For in my case, I have to bring the notes, the creator's notes to life through my musicians to the audience, all in the service of the composer. So it's really, it's acting as a conduit in many ways. And, and perhaps that's so apropos that the term conductor was coined. Because it really, the conductor is the conduit for the musicians to each other, mm. for the musicians to the audience, for the composer to the musicians, for the composer to the audience. So um, it's really, it's really a multifaceted role. Of course, there are some fundamental things that the conductor is doing and has to do. You know, keep keep the pulse. Um, be responsible for the architecture of the piece. Where is where is it going? Where is it arriving? What's the emotional um, disposition of every section? Those things, of course, are, are really important. But I would say on a very fundamental level, I'm acting as a conduit for every, uh, trying to connect everyone. Now, what about you working with different orchestras, not 
not an orchestra working with different conductors. When you when you go from Baltimore to Chicago, are you going to get a different response from them that you have to work with? Does each orchestra have a different personality? Absolutely. Every orchestra has a very distinct personality, a very distinct um, attitude. <laughs> and it's really fascinating because how can a hundred people have a personality? How do they but, show it? Well, you know, it manifests in different different ways, of course. Some musicians never look at you. You know, they're afraid to connect and or or maybe they don't feel they need to connect. That's a reflection of the personality. Also, you know, the the methodology of of the work um has to change depending where I'm working. If I'm working in Japan, it's a very very different work ethic hmm. from say London. You know, London, the orchestras there, they work um with very little rehearsal time. They're extremely quick and uh very resourceful in in germany and japan similar there's a real there's a real slow trajectory that you follow and it meets with their sort of bio clocks you know what i mean Mm. they're used to that and and you go with that um you know baltimore i would describe baltimore symphony as very much a reflection of the city of baltimore it's not without problems. Um, it's a it's a tough city. You know, it's a fighting city. Everybody rolls up their sleeves and says, "How can I help?" Mm. This the Baltimore Symphony is a scrappy orchestra, and I say that with the the most admiration and love I can. You know, they are musical, and they're going to tell you about it, and they're going to show you how they play. and And I really feel it's a reflection of the city. Uh, and the area probably as well. Later in the season, you're going to be talking with Lee McIntyre. He's a philosopher of science. He actually works just around the corner from me, where I live in Boston, at Boston University. And he's written several books on science. And his latest one is fascinating. It's called, and very timely, it's called How to Talk to a Science Denier. He said something very interesting that the halfway point between truth and a lie is still a lie. Yes. And it's the problem that we have when we're talking to people about any aspect of science or objectivity of any kind, like the COVID pandemic, whether we need masks, whether we need social distancing, whether we need vaccines. And if we're talking to somebody who simply denies the objective reality of what's been determined through careful, painstaking research, it's hard to strike a balance and meet somebody with a compromise, meet somebody halfway. Exactly right. He's really most interested in how to counter the science denial of areas you were just talking about, important things that matter to us all. But he, <laughs> he, he thought he would take an extreme example. Uh, and if he, could, if he could somehow understand one of the extremes of science denial, he would be able to cope better with uh, the ones which are more important. He certainly chose an extreme one. I started this whole journey by going to a flat earth convention. There were Mm. 650 flat earthers there. 
650. The idea that there might be 650 people in the whole world who don't believe the earth Many is more than that. Many, many. These were just the ones in Denver <laughs> at, that, right, exactly. you know, at that time. And, yeah. you know, I, I had to... Now, obviously, I thought they were wrong. But I had to approach them in a way where I was... The whole first day of the conference, I kept my mouth shut. I had to be approach them in such a way that they were free to express what they thought. And by doing that, sometimes they gave me everything I needed to then mm. ask them a devastating question. Now, there's a difference between planting the seed of doubt and getting somebody to tear off their lanyard and say, what a fool I've been. <laughs> okay, mm, yeah. that, I didn't do that. And that's very you, hard you to do in that kind of setting. You weren't hoping for that, apparently. You, you wanted um, to I, I, be... Well, it would have been nice, but it was unrealistic because I went there. Look, I went there to learn uh, how mm. to talk to science deniers, and I wanted to start with the most elemental ones I could find because I thought if I could talk to them, then I could talk to climate deniers, who are the ones mm. I'm really worried about. That you know, Then I could talk to anti-vaxxers. One of the things he discovered at the Flat Earth Convention was that on display were the five typical ways that science deniers think. Yeah, apparently there are five tropes that all science deniers have in common. They all follow the same basic strategy. They cherry-pick facts. They believe in conspiracy theories. They rely on fake experts while denigrating real experts. They engage in illogical reasoning. And here's my favorite. They expect science to be perfect. So, Meaning what? How does that play Meaning out? that unless that definitive study has been done to prove a result, they won't believe it. Which, of course, reveals that they don't understand how science works because it's not deductive logic. You know, they're, they're still waiting for that last scrap of evidence on climate change, you know, or, or they, you know, they want to have the vaccines proven to be safe. Even aspirin uh, can't be proven to be safe. I mean, it's just, mm. it's an impossible standard and it insulates them from really having to accept anything that they don't want to accept. What was the experience like at the Flat Earth Convention? It was... It was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. I was incognito the first day. I had on the lanyard. I blend, tried to blend in because I didn't want it. I was afraid that if they knew who I was, nobody would talk to me. Well, I was very mm -hmm. wrong about that. And it's the whole program started, and it was uh, like show business. It was not like an academic conference. There was music, lights, you know, clapping, you know, exhorting, and the media were there. And they were from the stage, you know, begging the media, stay, you know, all to 48 hours, you know, really learn. Don't just do a hit and run and go home and, uh, you know, write your story. Well, of course, after the first half hour, all the media left. And then somebody shut the doors and said, it's just us now. <laughs> and I thought, what's going to happen? What is about to happen at this very moment, you know? Um, but because I, they still didn't know who I was, they, you know, they went ahead and I got to yeah. see what this was all really about. And it was only later that I started to understand the patter, the repetition. It's a lot of slogans and, you know, different uh, things that they memorized from different people. And then 
I, I uh, would ask when a speaker would just come down off the stage, I would ask them, well, do you have a few minutes? And they thought I was a fan. So of course they've got a few minutes. But then after a few questions, they figured out, wait a minute. Uh, but but that, that, was, that was where I started to feel my confidence. That was where I started to feel you know, that I could do this. But it was still intimidating because we would gather a crowd and I was surrounded by people who either thought I was in cahoots with the devil or crazy or dangerous. But none of that, but the overriding thing that happened was that they wanted to convert me. Mm. They, just in the same way that I was there to look at them, they regarded me as kind of a subject. Well, if you're already here, you're already halfway in the door. If we just tell you, uh, you know, we can just work on you for two days, we can get you to convert. And, and that, that was very, that was fascinating. So that's a little bit of what's coming up in season 14. I hope you join us because I had a lot of fun talking with these folks, and I think you'll enjoy listening to them. As usual, we have some of the most interesting people around. And in a week or so, you're going to be talking to one of the most interesting people around, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, who's written a, a new book called The Authority of the Court and the Perils of Politics. So join us for interesting conversations about communicating and relating on Clear and Vivid. See you next week.